0: Good morning, church family. So very thankful to see you this morning, to be with you, to open God's word with you. And so we are, if you're if you're new to our church or if this is your first time visiting, uh, we're in our third week of looking at Jesus responding uh, to the religious leaders uh, who came to him while he was teaching in the temple during his last week of earthly ministry. And so Jesus is in the temple. He's teaching the religious leaders come, uh, and the root of their challenge is his authority. They, they, they say, what authority do you have to do the things you're doing and who has given it to you? And so after responding to that question with the question about John the Baptist, which got to the heart of their inability to even recognize the way that God had been working among them in John the Baptist and now Jesus, he launches into a series of parables. And we've been looking at each one of those, one about two sons, one about a landowner, and the one we're looking at this morning about a king who is hosting a wedding feast for his son. And so we find this parable in Matthew 22, uh, beginning at verse 1. And so if you want to open there now, you can, Matthew 22, verse 1. One of the interesting things to me about these parables that we may not see as we look at them week over week is they are getting progressively longer and more detailed each time. The first parable is pretty short, uh, and the next one that we looked at last week is a little longer, and then finally we come to this morning, the most detailed of a, time, uh, of a parable. I think Jesus is building up to a climactic application of sorts, uh, and, and in support of that is in the first two parables, he asks a question. Uh, So as he tells the parable, he asks the Jewish uh, religious leaders to respond. And then in the last parable, he simply makes a statement of application. And so I think he's building to the statement that we find today. And I also think as, as I looked at how Jesus teaches and how he unfolds these parables, I feel like he does a really impressive job of building to this great reversal. And this is why. When the religious leaders came to Jesus... Uh, the heart of their question was, where's your authority come from? Because we are the authority, right? We're in and you're out. So explain to us why it is you're doing the things that you're doing. And by the end of his parable, Jesus is going to actually tell them, in reality, you are out and I am the way in, right? This is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to reverse it on these religious leaders. That, that's essentially their question, right? And so I think that's a pretty important thing to know Isn't it? Whether you're in or whether you're out. And so they came to Jesus supposing that they were in. They came supposing because they were Jewish, sons of Abraham. They supposed that they were in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that they were right with God. And in particular, these religious observant leaders counted not only their heritage, but their keeping of the law as indicators they were in, right? It's not dissimilar from what we on Wednesday night read, Uh, when Paul lists those things he had been trusting in, right? That he was born in the right family, that he was a Pharisee, that he was all these things, right? He says, all that I was counting in. And in the same way, they are counting on those things. And so Jesus begins with a simple parable. One father, two sons. One rebels and then repents and does the will of the father. One submits and then fails to do the will of the father, showing that it's not our confession alone, But obedience is found in our actions. This, he says, shows that people like tax collectors and prostitutes who repented at the preaching of John the Baptist are in the kingdom and you are not. That's what he says, right? They're entering into the kingdom ahead of you because they repented and you did not. And then he tells another parable, a little more elaborate, a landowner goes and prepares a vineyard, he does all of the work, he he plants the vineyard, he fences it around, he builds a tower, he builds a wine press. he then leases it out and expects to receive what is due him. But the tenants he leased it to rebel and repel his efforts to collect in increasingly hostile ways until he removes them and leases the vineyard to those that will produce its fruit." This he says, no, this is not my words. These are Jesus' words. This he says shows that he will take the kingdom from you and give it to those who are producing its fruit, right? So first it was, which one is the obedient son? Now he's saying uh, it is going to be taken from people like you and given to a people producing its fruit. And in the last parable, in particular, he makes this point clear. So we come to this final parable, but we don't have to guess As the application, because Jesus gives us the application by which we understand the parable when he says, at the end, for many are called, but few are chosen. Right? This is his application statement at the end of all these parables. Many are called, but few are chosen. So we have to ask the question, called for what? Chosen for what? We don't need to look any further than his opening statements to the parable when he says the kingdom of heaven may be compared. So listen, we have these bookmarks, right? the purpose of the parable, to illustrate the kingdom of heaven, and the application of the parable, for many are called but few are chosen. And so now with these two, we can understand everything in between. Amen? Who is chosen for this kingdom? Isn't that the essence of what Jesus is getting at? Who is this people that God is going to give his kingdom to? Because Jesus has told them he's going to take it from them and give it to a people producing its fruit. Who are the people. That's the essence of what Jesus talks about this morning. This morning, we are going to look at, from Jesus' parable, three requirements of those chosen for the kingdom. Three requirements those chosen must meet. If you have your Bibles open, Matthew 22, and we're going to begin in verse 1. And so the first requirement is to be chosen, uh, you must be called. And so if you're taking notes, uh, to be chosen, you must be Called. And we're going to look at that in the parable, Matthew 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. Let's stop there for a minute. Immediately we see uh, in his application that Jesus is treating the ideas of being chosen, being called as different and yet related things. And so we can safely presume that if you aren't called, you can't be Chosen—that's just the terminology outworking that Jesus uses, and so, and indeed, there are many called in this parable that don't end up chosen in the end, and so we see kind of what Jesus is painting for us. But and we're going to see how that works out as we go through the parable. But for now, I want to focus in on the first part—the calling aspect. Uh, the word "call" is used many times in this short parable, right? Uh, and the idea is, is the word that we would use would be invitation, right? The, the invitation—that's the word "call," and so the invitation goes out. And so the first ones who receive the call or the invitation to come to the feast are those that had been previously invited. Now, in this day, what would happen is, as similar to what we have with save-the-date cards, right, when someone's getting married, an invitation would go out that would tell you that something was about to happen, a wedding, a feast, a celebration, on or around a certain day. And then on the day of, when everything was prepared, the servants would go out and proclaim that it was ready and it was time to come. And so you were expected to be ready to go, right, on that day, setting that aside. Now, without watches and alarms and digital calendars, I'm, uh, this was the way that we made sure that people showed up when the food was ready, right? And so this is, the, this is what Jesus is saying. The king says, go tell everybody who is already invited that the feast is ready. So Jesus is sharing a, uh, or using a shared cultural experience to illustrate a spiritual reality. God had promised his people he would send them a Messiah, an anointed one that would usher in his kingdom and rule his people. They were waiting for him to do this. Especially during Jesus' day under the Roman rule, there was an expectation that God was going to do something soon. They were looking for this Messiah, right? They were awaiting the proclamation that it was come, and then John the Baptist comes and says what? He's coming, right? He's here, I'm preparing the way for him. How do you see yourself, John? I'm the one proclaiming in the wilderness that he's coming. And for the most part, the religious leaders ignore him. They don't respond. And then Jesus comes teaching about the kingdom, displaying the power that accompanies the king. He's healing and the, the miracles and he's teaching, and yet the people either pay him no attention or dismiss him and even now when Jesus is speaking there are those actively plotting his death this is what the bible means when it says he came into his own but his own received him not right Jesus himself says that he came his ministry was to the Jews he came to tell the people who had been invited that it was time and by and large they ignored him They're not responding. They're not answering the call. And so Jesus says God will widen his call, much like in the parable. His purposes will not be thwarted. His vineyard will not remain unpopulated. If those who he originally called will not respond, he will call others. This is the picture Jesus gives. The king now tells his servants to go to the crossroads, the outskirts of town, and invite, call as many as you can. Jesus is talking about what will happen in a short time after he is put to death, resurrected, and uh, gathered with his disciples, right? Even the language is similar. The king says, go and invite as many as you can. Jesus says to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. Go call everyone as many as you can, right? Do you see the parallels? So what does this mean for us today? It means we have to be, we must be a calling people. Although not the main point of the parable, you'll allow me to make this obvious application from it. Those that enter the kingdom of God must be called by those who know about it, right? And so the the issue goes out. Paul says it this way in Romans, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So we are to be a calling people. Here's the question, who should we call? Who should we be inviting into the kingdom? Well, who were the servants supposed to invite? Everyone. The good and the bad right? That's the the result. It says the wedding hall is full of good and bad. So they were to invite everyone to come. These people had no formal connection to the king. They had no reason to be invited. They had no claims and no right. And yet he says, go invite everyone you happen upon. So here's a question As a citizen of the kingdom, are you issuing the invitation far and wide to everyone you find? It is not your job to discern who is chosen, who is good or who is bad, but rather to call everyone we can, understanding that no one is chosen, that is not called, and God uses his people to call. We are to be a calling people. If we see nothing else from this parable, I hope you see that, that we are the ones that are to call, invite people into the kingdom. Jesus is showing us in this parable that the call, the invitation, is going out into all the world at the hands of his followers so that his Father's house may be full. The first requirement is to be be chosen, you must be called. The second is, if you're taking notes to be chosen, you must accept the invitation. Now, first, notice with me the reason for the call the wedding feast is ready. God is ready to usher in his kingdom. He's ready to reconcile people back to himself. And so first he calls those previously invited. They do not come. He calls them again. Again, they refuse. And so he calls others. But but for a second, let's look at the response to those to the call who reject it. So those that that were invited that reject the call, uh, why did they reject it? And it comes down to, to two different words. Some were indifferent to it and some had indignation at it indifference to essentially they paid no attention and went off one to his farm and another to his business the root word translated paid no attention is to not care about it they they didn't care that they were invited they didn't care about this the marriage care about the king or his son they were simply too busy living their lives Jesus illustrates this with two examples when he says one went to his farm and another to his business or his merchants or his his wares or to his his place of business. They were too preoccupied with their to-do list, with making a living, so they paid no attention to the invitation. These were indifferent, but there were also those that responded with indignation to the invitation. They seized the servants. They treated them shamefully, and ultimately they put them to death. These people were angry with the king, and so they took it out on the servants, showing that if it was within their power, they would do the same thing to the king. They were not too busy. They hated the king, right? And they expressed it in the way that they treated his servants. But can I tell you this morning that this still summarizes many of the responses to the gospel message, either indifference or indignation. When we look at the way the world responds to the gospel, many times it is indifference. Many people are simply too preoccupied with their own lives to care. They say things like, I'm sure this Christianity thing is good for you, but it's just not for me. They say things like, maybe one day I'll come to Jesus, but I, I, maybe I'll come to your when life is less busy, when the kids are finished with school, when life slows down. Right now, listen, I'm good. Right? They're indifferent to the gospel message. They don't hate God. They just don't have time for him. Right? Many people, this is what we see when we try to tell them about the gospel and about the kingdom and about Christ. They simply don't have time. And there are others that violently resent any mention of his name. They understand the gospel call as one of submission, of ownership, one that dethrones them from the seat of prominence in their life, and it angers them. They are not indifferent. They are enraged that you would share the gospel. They want nothing to do with God or his people and take every opportunity to silence them or punish them. This is the two responses, right? Either I don't care or I'm angry at what you said. And a lot of times we think this only happens in other places, right? We hear horror stories about people who are dragged out of their house and and they're brought to either confess Christ or die, right? This, This aggression against Christianity, but it doesn't always have to be this overt, extreme examples. Listen, I was thinking this week of the way that this works itself out, and I have someone in my extended family that is forbidden Her parents from talking to their granddaughter about Jesus. They cannot share Bible stories with her. They can't talk to her about the real meaning of Christmas or Easter. They can't sing Christian songs with her. They can't share their faith with her. They can't even talk about their faith because if they do, they will lose all contact with their granddaughter. This is anger and indignation at the gospel, right? His anger at the name of Jesus, and it works itself out in all kinds of ways. But listen, and here's what I want you to understand. One is not better than the other. Indifference or indignation, either one is both rejection of the gospel. So it doesn't matter if they're indifferent or they're angry or enraged. They both refuse the invitation. So the only ones who will be chosen are those that accept the invitation to believe in Christ, to accept the good news we call the gospel, which is modeled for us in this second set of invitations. The servants go out and they invite as many people as they can. Literally, the king says, uh, tell as many people as you come upon, right? Just go out and everybody you come upon, everybody you meet, invite them. This is their, their charge as servants. What is the result? The Bible says the wedding hall is full of guests. Many people gladly accepted the invitation and came at once to the wedding feast. This is the picture that we have before us. And here's the question, what about you? How about you? Have you accepted the invitation to come to Christ? Now, there's a good chance that if you're here this morning, you're not enraged by it because you haven't got up and left yet. But it may be that you're indifferent to it. It may be here that you're, this, you're here this morning because you wanted to make someone else happy. You may be here this morning because uh, you feel like it's what you're supposed to do. But when it comes down to it, you really don't care. You're fine with all of this Christianity stuff as long as it doesn't interfere with your life. As long as it doesn't take away from your pursuits, your pleasure, your joy. Listen, friend, that is not accepting the invitation. The invitation is to drop everything and come to Jesus wholly and completely. And as we will see, there are some that seem to accept this invitation, but in reality, they do not. And so Jesus gathers, he, this picture is that the father has gathered, the king has gathered all of these people for the wedding feast. They've all accepted the invitation, and yet the story is going to take a turn in the next verses. But at the very least, we will see, so far, you see with me, to be chosen, you must accept the invitation having been called. And finally, to be chosen, you must be transformed by the call. To be chosen, you must be transformed by the call. Look at Matthew 22. We'll pick up in verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot. Cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. And so parables kind of always have these twists, these surprising things. And this is not the first surprising thing in this parable, but for Tom's sake, uh, we, we have to focus on this this pivotal uh, surprising aspect to our understanding culturally i need you the king would dine separately from the guests right like this is culturally there's nothing weird about this the king would dine separately so the guests were free to eat and drink and be merry right not the presence of the king but the king would come inspect his guest or to view his guest So he does come in. I mean, who responded to my call? Who is honoring his son and his marriage? As the king looks over his guest, he sees a man who does not have a wedding garment. At this point, we need to kind of stop and, and, and back up from the parable a little bit to get some cultural understanding. It wasn't that this man didn't dress up for the wedding, right? This is not a condemnation of his fashion sense, it's not a condemnation of his lack of money, that he was too impoverished to wear nice clothes. This is not what Jesus is talking about. This is not an indicator of his status, although like he was too poor to dress properly. Listen, like nowadays when we get a wedding invitation, it usually tells you what dress is expected, right? Formal, similar, formal, casual. Or maybe the location tells you. Like no couple expects you to show up to the beach in a full tuxedo, right? Like the you, there's expectations. But don't we always wear nice things to the wedding? Whatever level it is, we, we dress up because we want to respect and, and honor the bride and the groom. Listen, this is not that, okay? I want you to understand that this day, when the guests showed up, they would be provided with a festival garment to put on for the wedding. So this was culturally accepted. They would show up and the host would provide them a garment to wear. So while this is not clearly stated here, this is the underlying cultural presupposition operating. I mean, think about it. After all, the guests were called off the streets with no preparation, and yet this is the only one singled out, right? Good and bad, but they've all been covered by something. They've all put on a wedding garment except for this man. And even more condemning is when the king challenges him, he is speechless says his mouth is shut. That is, he has no defense. He knows he shouldn't be there without one. He knows that he has refused to put on what was provided. He has nothing to say, right? That's that he was speechless, no defense. Now, it's important for us to understand that this language would not be strange to the people of God. Many times in the Old Testament, what these religious leaders knew, by the way, God spoke of clothing his people. Isaiah 61 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Or passages like Zephaniah, one, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guest. And on that day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. Right? This is language familiar to them. So they understood what Jesus is saying. This man did not put on what was required of him. And this man is a picture of those that would feign acceptance of the gospel call and yet remain unchanged by it. To highlight Jesus' original audience of this parable, these were the religious leaders, the Pharisees, trying to stand in the presence of the king in their own righteousness, their own good works. Jesus says, these are not appropriate attire for the kingdom and ultimately you will be put out of it. For the Christian, what is the wedding garment? What is represented here? What is this robe? Well, in Revelation, there's a picture there's a scene that unfolds for John of the marriage feast of the Lamb. And so I think it's wise to go there and read what we find. If you want to follow over, it's Revelation 19, or you can say right there in Matthew. But Revelation 19 in verse 6, John says, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This highlights two things about these garments. The first is, the first we note is that verse 8 says it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. It was given to her the ability to clothe herself with fine linen. The Bible says that those who come to Christ who accept the invitation are clothed with Christ's righteousness by faith. It is a gift, not a work, lest any should boast, right? It was granted her to put on the robes of righteousness, but... Second, notice it says that the bride made herself ready. And then it says the fine linen she is clothed with is the righteous deeds of the saints. This highlights the results of having been clothed in Christ's righteousness, having been set from free from sin that we talked about this morning in Sunday school and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We now walk according to the Spirit, according to the light. That is, our lives are changed as a result of receiving the gift of salvation. And listen, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them Paul says we were created given this gift so that we could walk in the good works God prepared for us And so listen it's it's both it's the free gift of righteousness in Christ and it is the outworking of that in our lives And so this is supposed to be the picture we have in our minds. Listen, the man in our parable was put out because he was not fit to be in the king's presence because he had refused to clothe himself with what was provided. But here's where I kind of want to end. In essence, the implication is, and don't miss this, that everyone else who had been called who had accepted the invitation and had clothed themselves in what was provided were chosen, right? Jesus says all of them, for many are called, but few are chosen, and none of them got kicked out of the marriage supper. Listen, in theological debates, we can get so worked up on this issue of election, and by the way, can I tell you that that is the word Jesus uses when he says many are called, but few are chosen. He actually says many are called, but few are elected. But rather than getting involved in in that debate and and that kind of theological endless debate, isn't it much more important to make sure that we are in the few out of the many that are chosen? Can you know? How do you do that? Let's just work ourselves back through the questions that Jesus uses, or the parable that Jesus uses, as a way to evaluate whether we meet the requirements. Have you been called? That is, have you had the gospel proclaimed to you and been given a chance to respond? Even if you never have, if you're here this morning, the answer to that question is yes. You have heard the gospel, that the good news, the gift of salvation is free because Jesus Christ died for you. And so you have been called. Have you accepted the invitation? Have you turned from living your way uh, and surrendering to the will and desire of God for your life? Have you repented and turned to Him? You say, I don't know. Well, here's the last question. Have you been transformed by the call? Is your life radically different after coming to Christ? Are you producing the fruit that Scripture says you should produce? Yes. Then rejoice. For according to the Scripture, Jesus is going to prepare a place for you. And when he comes for you and his bride, it will be a glorious union of everlasting joy and peace with God. This is the picture of the marriage supper. But listen, if you think you're going to stand there one day in the marriage supper of the Lamb because you said a prayer, because you lived an okay life, because you were a pretty good person, then the bad news, according to Jesus, and don't miss this, to some of the most religiously observant people in history, that's not the right close. You will be put out. And the worst part is, and this is the weight that Jesus gives this parable, you will be utterly speechless and defenseless in that moment, just like the man in our parable because you willingly rejected God's offer of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. There'll be nothing to say, no defense, no argument. Your mouth will be shut before the king. For many are called, but few are chosen. And with that, Jesus concludes this set of parables designed to show these religious leaders that they were in fact the ones who were outside of the will of God. And unless they repented, they would find out that they were not some of the few. Amen. Let's pray this morning.